All right, so we are, we finished up lesson three a couple weeks ago, um, and so we are beginning lesson four, page 24 of your workbook, The Person and Work of Jesus Christ. Um, so I will start us with prayer, and then we will hopefully get through these first two sections today. Father, we come to you and we thank you that you have given us another day that we can devote wholly to your worship, to learning about you and praising your name. And Father, we ask that you would teach us, instruct us from uh, your word concerning the person and work of your son, Jesus Christ. Let us have a better understanding of who he is and what he has done for us and let us uh, take that understanding that knowledge of him and turn it into praise offered unto him so lord be with us this morning we ask this in christ's name amen all right so we are looking at uh the person and work of Christ of Jesus Christ today, particularly, we're beginning to look at the person of Jesus Christ, and then uh, probably in two weeks we will look at uh, his work. But we have to lay the foundation before we can get into uh, deeper things. And so to rightly understand the work of Jesus Christ, you have to understand who he is. So first we're looking at the person of Jesus Christ and uh, our workbook gives a definition there. Christ is one person with two natures. He is both God and man having a dual conscience uh, consciousness and a dual will. There is no fusion of his natures. For example, he continued to know all things as God, but as man, second Adam, he learned by the same processes other humans do only without sin. All right, so there we have an overview of who Jesus Christ is. He is one person, and he has two natures, uh, a divine nature and a human nature. Um, and those two natures are not to be confused or conjoined into one, um, but they're also not to be so separated as to make him into two persons. There's not a divine Jesus and a human Jesus. There is Jesus who is human and divine. Um, and so we're going to look at this through Scripture, this, uh, this doctrine that Christ is one person with two natures. So first we're going to look at Jesus Christ is truly God. Uh, I'll read Isaiah 9, 6. Matt, can you read Jeremiah 23, 6, Richard, John 17, 10, 
and then Roman Colossians 2 9. All right, so Isaiah 9 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So here in this verse, how does Isaiah speak of Christ's divine character? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's pretty explicit here. Um, wonderful counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Uh, these are kingly, royal, divine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's using divine characteristics, divine attributes, uh, divine offices uh, to describe Jesus. Um, and we know that this is a passage that speaks about Jesus um, because it's, it's quoted in New Testament as a prophecy of him. Uh, it is Christ who is the child that is born, the son that is given. Uh, upon him, the government was laid upon his shoulders. Uh, and so we know that this is talking about Jesus Christ. And Isaiah uses divine characteristics, divine qualities to speak of him. Uh, Matt, Jeremiah 23, 6. So in his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell safely. Now this is the name by which he will be called, the Lord of Righteousness. All right, so what is Jeremiah's title for Christ? The Lord, our righteousness. Um, the words that, that Jeremiah is using there, uh, the Lord, that's, that is the divine name of Jehovah, uh, a name which is only given to God. Uh, anyone else taking upon the name Jehovah is uh, blaspheming. God, uh, but but here we see that the Lord bestows upon Christ this title, the Lord of Righteousness, uh, the Lord our righteousness. Uh, so I guess righteousness as well. It seems to he is righteous, but it's you know it's like our righteousness that we get from him, not our own. Yeah. So it points to his. Yeah, it, it points forward to his work as our Redeemer, as our Messiah, um, because not only is he the Lord Jehovah, but he is our righteousness. Our righteousness, uh, meaning that because of who he is, because of what he does, his righteousness is given to us, is credited to us. Um, and that's why we say that we have an alien righteousness, and a righteousness that is not our own. And it's because Christ is Jehovah, the Lord, our 
righteousness. Uh, Richard, John 17, 10. Uh, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So how does Jesus state his equality with the Father? He says that all those that are of the fathers are also his. Um, so he's equal in that sense. Mm-hmm. And also that he is glorified in them. He receives glory because of this. Yeah. Uh, he is staking his claim to God's own possession, to the father's own possession. And the only one who can do that is little one's the one who is equal with the Father. Um, and then, I just I just blanked. What was the last part of what you said? Uh, he also says, I am glorified oh. in them. Yeah, and, and he says that he is glorified in them. Uh, receiving glory is something that is only to be done for uh, God. Um, the Lord says that he will not share his glory with another. Um, And so the only way that Christ could stake his claim to the possessions of the Father and to receive glory, which is due the Father, is if he is equal with the Father. All right, and Roman Colossians 2, 9. For in him all the fullness of the God have bodily. All right, so how does Paul express the deity of Jesus Christ in this passage? Yeah, so he's speaking of Christ. Uh, Colossians 2 is speaking about Christ. And when he says that the fullness of the Godhead dwells in him bodily, uh, he is speaking of the, the essence of who God is. That the essence of God, um, the nature of God, the deity of God, some translations actually translate it the fullness of deity, Uh, The deity of God rests in Christ bodily. Uh, And there we see that hypostatic union, that union of uh, the divine and the human, uh, that the fullness of the Godhead dwelt in Christ bodily. Um, So he did not... He did not lay aside his divine nature, um, nor did he, like the heretics of old would say, nor did he assume to himself the form of having a physical body. Uh, He actually had a body. And Paul says in Colossians 2, 9, that the fullness of the Godhead, all of God's deity, dwelt in Christ bodily. Yeah, Christ said 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Um, and that's another part, uh, another place where Christ is uh, directly saying that he is equal with the Father. Um, and I've heard, I've heard numerous times uh, where atheists will say, you know, Jesus never claims to be God. Uh, and it just blows my mind that they say that because Jesus claims to be God all over the place. Um, when he says, before Abraham was, I am, he's, he's invoking the divine name uh, of Jehovah. You know, and that's why when he says, before Abraham was, I am, they picked up stones to kill him. Uh, and then you get the passage that, you know, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Yeah, he also, yeah, he also, uh, yeah, he forgives sins. Mm-hmm. I think they were going to stone him for that, too. Yeah, the, his actions uh, show people that he is equal with God. Uh who who is it that has the ability to forgive sins but God alone? And so when when Christ said that he has the power to forgive sins, they sought to kill him. Um it just blows my mind how people will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Um it seems and I understand we're looking at it from a Christian perspective but just objectively, he claims to be God. Um, have you guys encountered anyone who has made that argument that Jesus never says he's God? Um, I think I hear that a lot from like Muslim apologists. If you hear, I guess I get a lot of apologetic material. Um, I guess they're looking for a statement <clears throat> from Jesus saying exactly I'm God. Of course, you don't have anything like that explicitly. There's a sense of, I guess, divine hiddenness. Uh, Jesus didn't want his followers to openly proclaim the kingdom just yet, especially during his earthly ministry. Uh, but the Jews certainly understood his claims when he talked about himself. Um, so it's not explicitly explicit, but it's it's pretty clear from the mm-hmm. statement. Yeah, Muslims will bring this up. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, they will bring this up, denying the divinity of Christ. Uh, and then atheists. Uh, and and even, even Jews, um, to an extent, might bring this up as well. I've, I've encountered a couple who have made mention of this. But I think... I don't think it has to do with them being Jewish. I think it has more to do with them just being atheists because most Jews are atheists now. Um, and so I think, I think this, is a, this is an argument that you guys are going to encounter as you're sharing the gospel with people. Um, this notion that Christ never 
claim to be God. And so I think it's good to have some of these verses in your back pocket to be able to pull out and say, you know, yes, he does. He does claim to be God very clearly here. You know, explain to me why the Pharisees wanted to kill him when he said that he had the power to forgive sins if he's not claiming to be God there. Um, and so in your, in your encounters in evangelism, and I understand apologetics and evangelism are, are two different things, but they, they do bleed over into each other a lot. And so, you know, in your, in your evangelistic efforts, if you come across someone making these kind of claims, uh, I think it's good to have, you know, two or three passages in which you can point people to show them, you know, Jesus does claim to be God. He uses the divine name of of the Lord when he says, before Abraham was, I am. You know, he claims, uh, he professes to have the abilities that only God possesses, like forgiving sins. Um he says that I and the Father are one, showing that there's an equality there. And so being able to pull these things out, I believe, will be helpful. Um, I encountered this quite a bit when I was doing street evangelism, street preaching in, uh, in Pittsburgh. And so I would, I would assume that you would encounter it here as well. It seems to be a, a an atheistic thought uh, that's propagated a lot online as well. So I'm sure that it's it's not just localized to Pittsburgh. All right. So any thoughts, questions, comments on God is truly, or, or that Jesus Christ is truly God. All right, so let's move now to look at uh, Jesus Christ is also truly man, but without sin as the second Adam. So Jesus Christ is also truly man, but without sin as the second Adam. Uh, Let's see, I will... I will read John 4, 6. Uh, Liz, can you read 1 John 4, 2? Um, Matt, Hebrews 4, 15. And Richard, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 45, to 45 and 47. All right, so... John 4 and verse 6. Now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the wall, and it was about the sixth hour. So what human trait did Jesus display here in this passage? Yes. 
exhausted. Yeah. Yeah, he could. He showed his his spatial limitation as a man by only being in one place at one time. He showed his uh, the effects of walking, heat, all of these things upon the body and his exhaustion. Um, the way that John puts it is that he he was wearied, uh, he was tired, he was exhausted, and so he he sat at the well, and we. We we know that uh, from the from what comes after that he's there to get water. He's thirsty, as as you guys said. Uh, so here we see a very clear example that uh, Jesus is a man. Uh, Liz, First John four two. All right, so how does John say that Jesus has come to us? In the flesh. Um, John is, is writing to particular people combating particular errors. Um, here he is combating the the spirit of Antichrist, which is among uh, the people there and at work in that time. Uh, And one of the teachings of those who are of Antichrist is to deny the fleshliness of Christ, to deny that he came in the flesh. Um, And this... This is a heresy that's found in a lot of Gnosticism. Um, It it has roots in uh, Greek philosophical thought. This notion that the spiritual is good and the physical is bad. Um, It's called dualism. Uh, And they would deny, they were denying that Christ came in the flesh because they believed that Christ was perfectly good, that he was God, uh, and because they had this dualistic mentality, they could not square it with Christ taking on a human flesh. Uh, because the flesh is physical, and physical is always bad. And so they couldn't see Christ as being perfectly good and taking on something that is bad. Um, and so they, they didn't square that with, with it, and so they denied that he came in the flesh. Yeah. Where exactly does that... Uh, it's it's a Greek philosophical thought uh, that it's called dualism, um, and it's not it's not 
directly tied, the, the dualistic thought is not directly tied to Christianity, to Jesus, or to the Gnostics. Like, it is an, an ancient Greek philosophical thought where they just, they had this notion that what is inner, the spiritual, uh, is good and the physical is bad. And so their belief was that uh, at the end of this life, the goal is to shed off the physical and live in only the spiritual reality. Um, Yeah. Yeah, Platonic thought really helps develop some of those things. Um, it's hard to nail down, you know, this person is the one who first started it because it, it is such, it's a thought, it's a philosophy that developed from a lot of different philosophies at that time and collated into. Uh, dualism. Um, yeah, I, I don't think I don't think we can pinpoint exactly where it started or why it started. Uh, I think the best we can say is that you know they're pulling from these philosophies and developing this ideology regarding the physical world and the spiritual. Um, I think that's the best, best that I can, best answer that I can give in regards to that. Well, we're trying to attain spiritual maturity. Um, you know, we we, I, I can see how you can make this error. Yeah. Um, you you you're you're trying hard. It's like the monks, who would brick themselves into a cell and sit there and meditate and read. And they had a little cubby hole that they put food in. So I hope they got slop jar too. But um, that was it. Right. It's, it's what it seems they, 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 they acknowledge and understand the people who came up. They understand human evil. Yeah. And they're coming up with a way of, okay, flesh is bad, but spirit is good. Yeah. And the flesh just makes me do crazy things. Mm-hmm. It's all bad. So, uh, yeah. Yeah, and... I can see where you come up with this. It's wrong, but I see where you come up with it. And it... There, there's still, like, weakened, softened forms of this around. Uh, well, even, I think, some of the Baptist... I'm, I'm going to pick on the Baptist. What do you call it? Uh, fundamentalist ideas of um, you know of, of my behavior. Uh, I don't smoke, drink, or chew, or go with girls that do. Type of ideology is is leaning that direction. Mm. We have to mortify the flesh, and yes, we do. We have to we have to mortify the flesh. <coughs> but the ideas that come out of that are are uh, are not right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you see it with other, you know, Anabaptist movements, the separatists uh, that, you know, like the uh, 
Mennonites, the Amish, those who separate themselves from all things physical uh, in order to try to focus on the spiritual. You see a form of it in monasticism, like what was mentioned, where you know, you're trying to separate from the world. Uh, but I, I think there's actually one that we might be more prone to and probably have encountered a lot, um, or at least I know I've encountered a lot. And that is this idea that, you know, I can do what I want because I'm right with God. Uh, It's, you know, this sharp separation between our spiritual and our physical. Uh, and, And it's this idea that, the things I do in my flesh don't affect my, my spirit because my spirit is good and this flesh is going to go away anyway. How many, how many times have you heard someone say, well, you know, this body's going to rot in the ground, what's it matter? You know, I, don't, I, don't need, I don't need to worry about this body or I don't need to worry about things of this world. And of course, you don't worry about the things of the world. But not everything physical is bad. And yes, this body's going to rot in the ground, but this body is what's going to be resurrected in the last day. Um, you know, that, that seems to be the most prevalent, softened form of this in evangelical Christianity is you know, this antinomianism of I can do what I want, and what I do in the flesh will not affect my spirit because my spirit is good. It's interesting that you bring that up because there are the two strands of, I guess, legalism and antinomianism. Both of them can affirm how the spirit is good, mm. flesh is bad. They have two different conclusions. Uh, because of that, it doesn't really matter how I treat the body. Very good, yeah. yeah. Because of this fact, so we must you know, completely focus on the spirit. Yeah, I'm glad that you caught on to that. Uh, I'm of the belief, and I, I, I don't know if I've said it here, but I've said it many times elsewhere. I'm of the belief that legalism and antinomianism are the exact same thing. They're two sides of the exact same coin. Uh, they're rooted in the same issues. They, have, they actually have the same beliefs. Uh, when you get down to it, they just they express themselves differently. Like you said, you know, same root error, they're expressing themselves differently. Uh, so I, I truly believe that antinomianism and legalism are two sides of the same coin. Um, I know we kind of went off on a tangent about Gnostic dualism there. Uh, no, no, no. It, it was needed because... John's addressing that in in that passage. Um, So we need to understand what it is that he's addressing there. Uh, Matt, Hebrews 4.15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. All right, so in what way was Jesus as a man unlike all other men? 
He was tempted, but we are all tempted. So how is he unlike us, though? He was without sin. So he, he is like us in all ways. He was tempted like us in all ways. He sympathizes us uh, with us in all things. And yet he was without sin. And so that makes him unique, unlike all other men. Uh, and that is essential to who he is. That he is without sin. That he cannot sin. Um, the impeccability of Christ is an essential doctrine uh, that Christ could not have sinned um, because it strikes at the very nature of who he is. He's God. Um, And if he could have sinned, then he could have failed in his uh, act as Redeemer which would mean that he's not God because God cannot fail. It is impossible for God to fail. It is impossible for God to sin. Um, And we've already seen that Christ is God. Um, And so we have to understand that Christ is like us in all these ways, that he sympathizes with us, that he was uh, tempted like us, And yet, he was without sin. Um, It's interesting to note that the impeccability of Christ, whether or not Christ could have sinned, has been a point of debate among even Reformed Christians. Um, Respected men in Reformed Christianity question whether or not the impeccability of Christ is a true biblical doctrine. Men like Sinclair Ferguson, uh, R.C. Sproul, um, even some men within our own denomination uh, have questioned whether or not this doctrine is a true and biblical doctrine. And they, it usually stems from them saying, if Christ could not sin, then how could he have been tempted? How can there be temptation if the reality, the possibility of giving into the temptation was not there? Uh, and it fundamentally misunderstands uh, what temptation is. It applies our fallen understanding of temptation uh, to Christ. Christ was tempted just as we are, and yet he had no sin nature. Nothing within him was bent towards sin, and nothing in him ever desired sin. And so there was nothing for that temptation to latch onto Uh, to develop and to turn into sin, which means it was impossible for Christ to have given in to that sin, to that temptation. Um, Well, you think of the uh, temptation of Christ in the wilderness and how he was tempted to So he was not really tempted to, I 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't want to. I don't want to dwell too long on this because it is still very much an open controversy. Um, I don't know if controversy is the right word. An open discussion. Um, I would point you towards Keith Evans has a very good article on gentle reformation about why we have to have the impeccability of Christ. Um, I would argue that it's an essential doctrine. Um, Now that's not to say that, you know, you have to understand the impeccability of Christ before you can be a Christian. Knowledge isn't required. Knowledge in that way is not required of us before uh, coming to Christ. But if we are to have a true biblical Christianity, it must have the impeccability of Christ as a central doctrine. Uh, Just so you guys know, so I'm up front and open with you all. I will never vote uh, to sustain a man for ordination if he does not believe in the impeccability of Christ. Uh, Whether that's ordination for deacon, ordination for elder, ordination for pastor, uh, I will not vote to approve a man to be a professor at our seminary if he does not affirm the impeccability of Christ. That's how strongly I feel about this doctrine. Well, the atonement of Christ and is, is dependent upon the impeccability of Christ. So what God offered up for our sins was the perfect lamb, in a sense. That's what it's referred to as. And if that lamb was imperfect, then it was unworthy of the sacrifice that God was making. Um, it's it's to to question the impeccability of Christ. I, I agree with you. Uh, to question the impeccability of Christ is to start questioning the very core of atonement and what was accomplished for us on the cross. It just you know, to me it, it starts pulling too many strings. Away. Mm-hmm. Well, also, it's not saying that Christ has. Said but that's Christ could have said, right? The claim is that... Right. Yeah, but uh, I, I agree with you, Bob, that it, it strikes at the very nature of the atonement. Um, and I, I think that the reason it does that is, you know, yes, if Christ could have sinned, and if he had sinned, then there was no way he could have been the perfect sacrifice... Um, peccability, the ability to sin, is is not uh, a a characteristic or an attribute of God, um, and we know that the atonement 
the sacrifice of atonement had to be uh, God himself. And if we are going to say that Christ was peccable, uh, then that strikes at the very divinity of Christ, at his very divine nature, because now you're attributing something to the person which negates an attribute of his divine self. Um, Christ, if he is God, cannot be peccable. Any other thoughts on that? I know I just went down another rabbit trail. People like Sinclair Ferguson, um, have they resolved this? Or are they still pushing it? Uh, I, I'm just curious. Last I've read, he is still affirming that uh, the impeccability of Christ is not taught in Scripture. Um, I believe that he got it from R.C. Sproul. And uh, Sproul brought with him when he converted to Christianity, and praise God that he did because he was, you know, I'm not going to sit here and say things that ill towards R.C. Sproul. The Lord used him mightily um, and still uses him mightily. He was, he was a great man of God, but he had his flaws. And Sproul brought a lot of non-reformed ideology into reformed camps. Um, and so I think we need, to, we need to appreciate these men like Sproul, Ferguson, um, and yet recognize that they are flawed men who hold to some errors, and I would say even grievous error. I think I think that denying impeccability is a grievous error. Where, where does this show up in any of his writings? Uh, blog articles. It's not in any of the books or anything. Uh, I've only found it in blog articles. Um, By him. Yeah. And I think Derek Thomas, don't quote me on that, but I believe Derek Thomas interacts with it as well. Um, but if you just, if you type Reformed Theology, Impeccability of Christ, you're going to find, you know, two, three dozen articles from ten different people, uh, some affirming it, some questioning it. Um, the concern that I have is in ordaining men to office who do not hold to the impeccability of Christ because they in turn are going to teach that error. Um, and then especially appointing men to our seminary who don't affirm it because they're going to teach it in the seminary and whether or not they teach it, it's going to impact how they teach, you know, the nature of Christ. 
um, the person and work of Christ. And then that's going to trickle down from the seminary into the pastors and then the pastors into congregations. Uh, and this is a this is a poison that will kill a church to deny the impeccability of Christ. Because you're beginning to call into question the very divine characteristics of the Son of God. And once you call into question Christ's impeccability, what else is, is uh, off limits? Nothing. At that point, everything's up for grabs. It's almost the antinomian error. Because they're taking the bodies and saying, well, it had to have sinned. And the spirit was fine. Yeah, not. Yeah, not, not, not to that extent. They wouldn't say that, but they would say that because Christ took on a human flesh, that peccability is innate to human nature, and so he had to have been peccable. Um, Wait, so just to be clear, their stance is like hypothetically he could have sinned, but he didn't. Yes. Okay. And the error, you know, I, I think there are multiple ways in which it is an error, but the error that, you know, peccability is innate to human nature is fundamentally wrong. Um, and that's the argument they'll make is that because he took on a human nature, humans are peccable, therefore Christ had to have been peccable, but because he was God, he did not sin, um, and so he was the perfect atoning sacrifice. But I want you to think for a second. Think about think about eternity, future, new heavens, new earth, new creation, new Jerusalem. The judgment uh, day has come and gone. We're given our resurrected bodies. And we are living forever in the new Jerusalem. You've, your soul has been reunited with your body. Are you a human? In that state, are you a human? Yes. yes. Are you able to sin in that state? No. So if you are human in the new heavens and new earth and you are not able to sin, i.e., in, you know, in that glorified state, you are impeccable, is peccability necessary to human nature? No. Otherwise, you would be able to sin even in the even in the glorified state. It's simple logic that dismantles this, and it blows my mind that such renowned men believe this error. You're gonna say something. Okay, I was gonna yeah question. So you know we have uh, one uh, one person with two natures. So if if it was possible for Christ to sin in his human nature, 
then you would sin against the divine nature as well. So it can't happen. Yeah, yeah. So what you're hitting on is the orthodox understanding of the two natures cannot be fused, but they can also, they can't be separated from the person himself. That they, it's what's called the hypostatic union. They work in a union, in a hypostasis, 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 however you want to call it, together, uh, working with one another in a union, but they are not fused together to create one nature, some sort of hybrid divine human nature, and they are not so separated as to the person of Christ having uh, uniquely human uh, qualities that are distinct from his uniquely divine qualities, and they never interact. Uh, that's important, is to understand the two distinct natures that are neither fused nor uh, absolutely separated. The two, the two natures also, just as our spirit, influence each other. So, as, as he was all, all, all of God in the spirit, um, that had an impact on his on flesh. And the argument is, was, was Christ capable of sinning? And the answer is yes. Did he sin? The answer is no. So in the flesh, we're all capable of sin. But Christ lived that life without sinning. So he overcame the sin in the flesh through his infallibility. Um, so, you know, and it's, it's a moot point to even ask the question of was Christ capable of sinning? It, it's flesh, and I imagine it was. But he lived a life without sin. So the argument is, you know, people, you get wrapped up in the weeds with, with questions, asking too many questions about it. Yeah, yeah. His, his body was obviously subject to the effects of sin. He was thirsty. Yeah. He was hungry. Yeah. He was tired. He died. (laughs) His body is obviously, you know, his human nature, his body is subject to the effects of the fall, uh, the outside effects. But he does not have a sin nature, you know. And so, I don't want to keep going on this. I do want to get through this last. Uh, but there, there are some really good things that you can read regarding the impeccability of Christ. I would say start with Keith Evans' article on it on General Reformation. And, and do you get General Reformation? You can subscribe to it. Mm-hmm. On, you know, it's something you ought to be, uh, have on your phone or your, or your computer. Great 
right. Uh, number four, I think I asked Richard to do this one. 1 Corinthians 15, 45, and 47. Uh, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a living, life-giving spirit. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. All right, so in verse 45... Who is referred to as the last Adam? That is Jesus. Okay, that is Jesus. Um, and he's described as a life-giving spirit, correct? That's how it was worded? Yeah, life-giving spirit. A life-giving spirit. All right. Um, and then verse 47. How is the first man characterized? Right, so the first man was a man of the earth. He was earthly. Uh, he was of the dust. Um, what What is said about the second man? Uh, that he's from heaven. That he is from heaven. Uh, the King James says the second man is the Lord from heaven. Uh, so here we we see that you know there is that distinction between the first man, the first Adam, and the second man, the second Adam, who is Christ. That the first Adam was earthy; he was of the dust of the earth. But the second man is spiritual. He is of the Lord. He is of heaven. Um, and he is the Lord. Um, and so you have Christ who is from heaven, who assumes a human body and a reasonable soul. Uh, he, he does not remove the spiritual, the heavenly that he came from, but he assumes to himself the earthly, the physical, uh, the fleshly, and becomes the second Adam, the one who uh, perfectly obeys that covenant of works. And we'll talk about how... Christ does that later, uh, specifically in, in when we talk about the work of Christ. But uh, there we see that uh, Jesus is truly man, but without sin, as the second Adam. Uh, so any questions on that section? All right. Uh, next week, we will do the next section. Jesus Christ is revealed in Scripture as existing in different conditions or states. So we will do that section. Uh, and then we will spend one, should be one more week on uh, just the work of Christ. All right. Bob, you want to close us in prayer? Oh, Lord, thank you. Thank you.
um, help us now as we come before you to worship. Thank you for the privilege we have of being in your house this morning. Be with Josh as he opens his, your word in the service for us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. 